those of us that are remaining, I would invite you to turn to the book of Ecclesiastes as we continue our journey together with the preacher. We are now in chapter 5, quickly approaching the halfway point. Our text this morning is chapter 5. You may have noticed that throughout Ecclesiastes we've been dealing with some larger sections of Scripture than we did in Galatians. It's just the nature of the type of book it is. But if you would stand with me and hear the Word of God now from Ecclesiastes chapter 5. This is the Word of the Lord. It is inerrant. It is sufficient. And it is authoritative. Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw an ear, to listen, is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business, and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much. But the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy 
in his heart. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. In our modern age of technology and especially of computers, we are often, even the least knowledgeable of us, prone to what is called multitasking. Working on several computer programs at once. And if you're anything like me, you try to get more and more RAM into your machine so you can run Word and Excel and an email program and be on the internet and do everything at once without being slowed down. But you know, the reality of it is, multitasking didn't start with computers. Just ask any homemaker. Working with the kids, something's on the stove, the phone rings, right? Just ask anyone who's having a very busy day at the office, right? Secretary wants one thing, people are asking for something else, Boss comes and needs something right away, drop everything. We're multitasking. But there's a, if I could put it this way, a sinister side to multitasking as well. It's multitasking when the husband is reading the paper while listening to the wife. Yeah, sure, honey. That would be wonderful. What do you think? Okay. Sure. Right? It's multitasking when the husband wants the wife to sit next to him and maybe watch a baseball game and relax. And she sits down and, oh, I forgot to... She gets up and does something. And she says, oh, I forgot. You see, it's multitasking that's not real multitasking. It's ignoring one thing at the expense of another. Now, we can laugh and make jokes about how husbands don't listen to their wives and Wives can't sit and relax next to their husbands. But the problem is, is when this happens in a spiritual realm, which it does. And so our tour guide, the preacher, Solomon, describes for us what happens when we lose the focus of our mind. When we attempt to multitask God. And as the Bible says over and over and over again. So often, the newspaper in our hand, the one job that can't be left for ten minutes, is our fear of security and our need to escape poverty and hoard up wealth. It takes our mind away from the Lord. And so Solomon deals in chapter 5 here with the need for us to fear God and to pay attention to God. And to not fear poverty. And so first he's going to deal with our passivity with God. We might say our neglect. And then one of the reasons why we're passive with God is because we are preoccupied with money. Preoccupied with money. And that happens, as we'll see, to both rich and poor alike. And we're passive with God at times and preoccupied with money. And Solomon, as he is so wont to do, provides us with the answer. And the answer is a proper connection between God and money. It's really not an either-or. Because what the New Testament says, seek first the kingdom of God 
and all these things will be added unto you, is really true. This is Solomon's Old Testament sermon on this. And so I would like us to to dive in here, reminding you that last week we were in Ecclesiastes 4, and next week we're going to be in Ecclesiastes 6, and so we're taking the text as it comes to us. And so hear now the word of the Lord. The first thing that we see is that we become passive with God. We are at times prone to go through the motions. Look at verse 1. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. Solomon first gets our attention by saying, it's very important what your demeanor is. Kids, demeanor is a really big word for what your attitude is, what your focus is. You've had your parents say that to you, haven't you? Even when you've obeyed and your attitude is wrong, you need to be focused on your demeanor and your attitude. But it's not just that. We need to be prepared in our attitudes. And so Solomon says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. When you are about to go to the house of God, when you are about to go to the place where God is present, not just church, right? If we were waiting to guard our steps before we walked into a church, we'd have a lot of difficulty because last I looked, this was a cafetorium. Does that mean we shouldn't be prepared? No, it means that wherever God is found, just as Jacob said when he had the dream, surely God is in this place. And he called the place the house of God. We are to be prepared. The psalmist puts it this way, using the same imagery. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. All of the practical ways that we think about not sinning are ways of guarding our steps, guarding our feet. The psalmist puts it another way in Psalm 1, that we are not to walk with the unrighteous. We are to be with the righteous in the path of the word. And so what Solomon here is, is trying to get our attention. He's not doing anything very dissimilar to what Isaiah or Jeremiah or Hosea or Joel are doing. You see, what they did was they attacked those who were vicious and hypocritical especially in the worship of God. The preacher has in his mind the well-meaning, lazy worshiper. He says, listen, you need to be prepared. You need to be focused upon God, wherever God is. And we know that God is a spirit. And so God is, what does the children's catechism say? Where is God? Everywhere. We are to be focused upon the Lord God primarily in all aspects of our life. To do otherwise is to be, as Solomon says, the fool. Have you noticed the the repetition here? It's, It's a bit harsh. He says, you don't want to offer the sacrifice of fools. He says, don't be a fool's voice. Three times he says... You are to be a fool if you don't pay attention to God. You want to focus upon God. You see, to be casual with God is, first of all, evil. Verse 1 of chapter 5, doing evil. It's also sin. Verse 6, don't let your mouth lead you into sin. And then finally, he reminds us that it doesn't go unpunished at the end of verse 6. Why should God be angry at your voice? 
There's an importance to our demeanor. He also puts it this way. It's better not to do something than to not do it right when it comes to God and the worship of God. You see, right here refers to the posture of our hearts because they were doing what they were supposed to do. It's not that they left the sacrifice undone. It was the sacrifice of fools. It's the attitude of the heart that the Lord wants. He doesn't just want us going through the motions, checking the box. Ladies, how many of you would appreciate your husband if he came home on your anniversary and said, best anniversary ever, I've got my list. Flowers, check. Gift, check. Card, check. Hallmark, double check. Okay, happy anniversary, honey. That's the best anniversary we ever had, right? He hit all the items, right? But you see, that's not what we want. Even with each other, we want the heart. And that's what God wants. You see, superficial piety seeks to keep God at a distance with sacrifices. That's what it means. Solomon says, draw near and listen. That is better than sacrifice. The external must lead to the internal. We must focus upon God. Well, what is needed then? We don't want to be formalists. We don't want to be cold. We don't want to have dead orthodoxy. What are we called to do then? Draw near. Listen. Draw near. Pay attention to God. Focus upon Him. Make Him your desires. You don't want to offer the sacrifice of fools. The word for sacrifice here, there are many, many different kinds of sacrifices, and if we wanted to spend a few hours, I could read through Leviticus and Numbers for you and describe them all to you. But suffice it to say, there were two basic kinds of sacrifices. The kinds that you took and they were completely burned up and consumed. Whole offerings. And then there's the other kind where the animal was sacrificed, a part was offered up, and then the rest was turned into a meal. Part for the priest, part for the family. The word here for sacrifice is that second kind of sacrifice. Do you see how easily that can move into formalism and into a lackadaisical attitude? Well, okay, we got to do this. All right, we need lunch. Okay. It's something you're doing all the time. It's something that affects your daily life. It's something that's practical. It's something you've got to do. Now, we're not going to set up a tabernacle. But can't your Bible reading be that way? All right, got to read through the Bible in a year. All right, what am I reading today? Okay, got to get through that, got through that. All right, got to have my quiet time. Well, eight minutes of prayer today? Well, I did pray 12 minutes yesterday, so eight minutes today. Okay. You see, these eminently practical things, if we're not focused upon God, can lead us to a lackadaisical attitude. We need to draw near to God. And then we need to, in the Bible's Grand way of saying it, listen. The word here for listen means more than just perk up your ear. It means hear and obey. Many of you are familiar with the famous verse from 1 Samuel 15, where Samuel says to Saul, it is better to obey than to sacrifice. Obey, listen, exact same word. Exact same word. Listening assumes obeying, right? 
If you tell your children to go off and clean their room or go off and do something and they don't, you assume that they have not what? Listened. Because they're not doing what you have told them to. So it is with God. We are called to draw near to him and we are called to hear and obey. Not to go through the motions. Well, we're not to go through the motions. We're also not to have pious talk. We don't want to be rash with our mouth, Solomon says, verse 2. Nor let our heart be hasty to utter words. You see, because careless words reflect the inner life. Our Lord says in Luke 6 that out of the heart the mouth speaks. Did you notice what the text says here? It says, the heart utters a hasty word. It's what's inside us that wells up out. This happens to us, doesn't it? You're really frustrated. Your kids have been very disobedient. Your spouse has just hit you with a real zinger in an argument. And what comes out? Blah! Sin just goes all over the table. It blurts out. And then you have to step back and say, Oh, I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have said that. Right? It comes out in the child who, because they don't get a candy bar, says to his parents, I hate you. Even when everyone knows that they don't. But it comes out of the heart. You see, careless words lead to sin. There's also a sense in which we can be impatient and be busy with words. You see, impatience in prayer is a result of busyness. Trying to get all of the words in that we can. One commentator puts it this way, and I think this is a keeper. Nothing is more unacceptable to God than when we go on speaking after we have left off praying. We're checked out, and yet we're still going and going in prayer. Compare that to Acts chapter 4. In Acts chapter 4 and verse 24, the apostles come together to pray. And the first thing that they do is they begin to worship in verse 24. In verse 24, they say the following. And when they heard it, they lifted up their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made heaven and earth and the sea and everything that is in them. And then they begin to apply the word of God. From verses 25 through verses 28, there's an application of a psalm. And then in verse 29, they begin to give a single heartfelt request. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to speak with boldness. And the answer to that prayer is monumental, isn't it, in verse 31. You see, there's a singleness of mind and of purpose. There's no need to be busy with words. Well, we don't want to go through the motions. We don't want to be characterized by good-sounding, christian ease talk. We also don't want to be filled up with excuses. Look at verse 4. You see, the jump from rash words to rash vows is very easy. Verse 4, when you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. You see, oftentimes we are willing to vow just about anything when we're in a strait. Right? What's the saying? In the foxhole, everybody is a Christian. Have you had that happen? So when the test results come back and you say, Lord, if this just works, I'll, I'll go to the mission field tomorrow. Or if you just can take this away from me, Lord, I will read my Bible five chapters a day, every day for the rest of my life. You see, what God says is, I don't want 
promises that you blurt out and haven't thought through that you're going to keep. I want you to think through it. I'd rather you promised me less and gave me your heart. That's applicable to us today. God wants our hearts, not grand-sounding vows. Because when the messenger, and that would be in this case here, the messenger of the priest, comes to collect on the vow, he doesn't want to hear excuses. Oh, I was tired. Oh, um, that business deal didn't come through. Oh, what when the crops come in? Oh, the check is in the mail. Oh, I will gladly pay you Tuesday for a hamburger today. Yet some of us treat God as if he's as gullible as Popeye. Lord, I will gladly pay you with piety Tuesday for the blessing that you give to me today. You see, God wants us and he wants our focus. He doesn't want big promises. Your kids don't want big promises that you don't keep. They want you to keep your promises. One of the most difficult things for a Christian to keep, and I would urge you to be careful when you vow this, is when you say these words, I'll pray for you. If you say it, you better mean it. And you better do it. Or you're taking the Lord's name in vain. Better not to say you'll pray for them, say you'll be thinking about them, or sympathize with them, than to promise something and not follow through. You see, illusions and words do not make reality. Newsflash, Tony Robbins is dead wrong. You don't create your own reality by what you say and think. God creates reality. We focus upon God. We don't want to be passive with God. Well, what causes this at times? It's our second point here. It's our preoccupation with money. And Solomon deals with the whole spectrum here. He starts here with official government predators. In verses 8 and 9, he says, If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, don't be amazed. This happens all the time. This is a part of life. You see, he's talked before about injustice and persecution, but it's always been unofficial and contrary to justice. Now he says it's actually a part of the governmental system. You know how it goes. The guy on top wants the villa on the French Riviera, so he squeezes the guy underneath him. He doesn't like getting squeezed, and he says, well, I can't afford a villa, but I'll put an addition on my home, and I'll squeeze the guy beneath me. And the guy beneath him says, I can't get an addition on my home, but I'll at least get a good week's vacation. I'm going to squeeze this guy. And that's what happens. That's the principle, that's the reason why tax collectors are so hated in the New Testament. That was their job. The Romans said, we want this much. Anything else you get is gravy for you. And the little guy on the bottom gets squeezed and squeezed and squeezed. So it's a part of man's system of government to be preoccupied with what I can get, what is in it for me, and it doesn't matter who gets hurt by it. This is, there's no amazement here. Some of you may recall a film that was out several years ago, pop culture reference for Ecclesiastes. It's a Monty Python skit where one of the persons after the king says, you have to obey me. Why? Because I'm the king. You have to give me. Why? Because I'm the king. He says, oh, now we see the violence inherent in the system. There is violence inherent in the system. There's injustice inherent in the system because of sin. It trickles down. Everybody wants their peace in the line. But it's not just that the government has its predators. It's not just the folks out there who are bad, who have greed that push their life. 
Greed causes difficulty for all of us, and it has its reward. We see it in verses 10, 11, and 12. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. The first reward is an insatiable craving for more. The more you get, the more you want. You get more, you want more. It's like, an example of this might be if any of you have ever known an entrepreneur. Most entrepreneurs aren't really driven by money. They're driven by the fix that they get by seeing something rise from nothing. They build a business, and as soon as it's going, the first thing they do is sell it and go on to the next one. And then the next one. Because you see, they're never satisfied. They're trying to recreate that same feeling. And we can do that as well with money. There's a general discontent that wells up in us. You see, you don't have to be wealthy. It doesn't say the rich man. It says one who loves money. You see, it's not about, well, I'm okay. I don't have a big house, so I'm safe from this. Some of the greediest people in America today are on welfare rolls. And all they think about is what they can get and why they don't have it and why someone else has it. And it obsesses them. You see, we need to guard our hearts, focus upon the Lord, and not focus upon what comes to us. Because, you see, Solomon says, the only thing worse than the addiction of money is the emptiness that it leaves. It's vanity. But there's a second reward for greed. It's hangers-on. Look at verse 11. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? How many of you families have seen this? You get a raise and it's already spent. Right? How many of you have seen this with your college kids? You send them money and it's already gone. Mom, could you send me an extra $50 because I'm already 100 in the hole? Why? Well, you see, you sent me $200 and nobody else gets that much money, so when we go out, I have to buy the pizza for everybody. What? You see, the more we have, the more others want to get from us. This is just what happens. Isaiah illustrates it this way in Isaiah 22. He says, I will make you a peg, he says to Eliakim, and everyone will depend on you. There's only one problem, though. Everyone is going to depend on you. One coat, two coats, three coats, four coats, five coats, snap. We reach our breaking point. This morality drama plays out every day in front of us when we see someone win the lottery. It was just in the news this past month. The man is convinced that winning the lottery was a curse to him. His granddaughter's dead. His life is ruined. He had to employ several people full-time just to carry mailbags from people asking him for stuff. I don't know if you saw this. In some of the requests, it was not like, my child has cancer, can you help me with the operation? It was, I want a new Corvette, give me the money. Huh? I think I should be able to take a vacation, send me the money. What? I want a new guitar, send me the money. And he doesn't know them from Adam. Hangers on, come around us. It's one of the rewards of greed and success. It's one of the reasons why many people who are wealthy are very secretive. Howard Hughes took that to an extreme where he didn't talk to anyone because he was afraid of what others would ask for him. There's a third reward, though, for greed. We see it in verse 12. It's called worry. 
Sweet is the sleep of the laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. I want you to notice something here. There's a worry that strikes the man here who is seeking after money and greed and who is rich. And it's not because of overwork. The word here, it says, his full stomach. There's, there's actually two ways you could translate this Hebrew word. And there's, I think, deliberate ambiguity. One is a stomach that is full. And the other is the richness of his possessions. You see, that doesn't allow him to sleep. And notice that the laborer sleeps well. But I want you to notice something. The laborer sleeps well whether he eats little or much. So there's no virtue of starving yourself and being poor. The laborer could eat well. But it's the fact that he is not focused upon his gain and his greed, but rather on the labor, and we'll see in a few moments, on the one who gives him his labor that causes him to have a sound night's sleep. You see, sometimes our success is our biggest problem. Let me put it to you this way, just by way of example. Have you ever thought about how absurd it is in the big picture that we have to spend money to deal with the effects of the fact that we have money in a lot of things? We have to pay someone to help us work out in a gym because we're so wealthy that we eat better than 98% of the world. Now, I'm not suggesting you shouldn't go in the gym. And I'm not suggesting that everybody needs to go on a diet. What I'm suggesting is, is that as we think about what we have, we need to be radically changed in thinking about how it reflects how we think about God. Not ourselves, not our things, not our life, but about God. That's where our focus should be. Because you see, there's another thing that happens here to the greedy. We see it in verse 13. It can be gone in a moment. Some of you know this. Some of you have seen the money go poof. Tell anyone, ask anyone who had all of their 401k in Enron. It's gone. Where'd it go? Where's my security blanket? Ask anyone who's ever lost a major possession and found out they didn't have insurance on it. Home burns down. It's gone. You see, these things aren't real security. The problem is when we try and act as if they are, we're trying to get more out of life than life can give. You see, this man here, he not only had the grief of working hard to hoard up money, now he has the grief that he has none. And Solomon really turns the knife here on him. He says, and he's just had a son. And he doesn't have anyone, anything to give to him. There's no security there. You see, we can't seek security in our things. You can think, well, we live in America. And what I will do is, I will send my child to a top university in America where there are a lot of people around, not a small one, but a big one, where there's a police force and where there are people looking out for each other. And they'll be safe forever. We saw this week that that's not true. We've also seen this week the poignant tales of those who have put their faith and trust and security in the Lord, and even though they have lost what many deem the greatest possession we can have, life, they are safe and secure in the arms of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
You see, the key here is our final point, and that is there is a proper connection between God and money. It's not God good, money bad. Because God is the one who gives wealth, Solomon says. This provision is from God. Verse 18, Behold, I have seen it to be a good and fitting thing. Behold, I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun. You see, God gives food and drink and enjoyment. There is no inherent blessing or virtue in being miserable and poor. But the focus is upon God, the giver of the provision. You see, Solomon says there is a better choice. I have seen it, he says. Behold, I have seen what is good. What is good and what is fitting is to enjoy the life that God has given to us. And notice that it's enjoyable even in the midst of that nasty word, toil. It's still enjoyable, Solomon says. You see, there's no need for you today to pine away for your retirement and think, well, I could be miserable now, but someday I'll be able to wear white pants, put on sunglasses, and go live in Florida. Right? Florida's not the end-all, be-all. Some of us come here to, from Florida after for our retirement. And true retirement is found in working with God's people and seeing God's ministry grow. You can be happy today in the midst of even the toughness of your job. Solomon says, it is a provision to you the difficulties that you have because your children are small. Or because your children are in high school. Or because your children are in college. You see, the focus is on the provision that God gives, not on the circumstance. God doesn't change. He's just as good when you're changing diapers as when you're looking at your watch on a curfew as when you're waiting for a phone call from out of state. It's God. The focus here is upon the Lord, and that makes the provision enjoyable. Because you see, Solomon ends here in verses 19 and 20 by saying, the provision is in God, from God, but the enjoyment is from God too. Look at what he says. This is radical for our day and age. He says, For everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power. Now think about that for a minute. I'm going to stop. God gives wealth and possessions and power. Now we can say that he gives that indiscriminately. We see people who mock God every day, who got big bank accounts who got a lot of stuff, who have power. But notice how this verse goes on. Power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. You see, the difference between the one who has a proper perspective and looks to God and the one who does not is not in the amount of stuff they have. It's in the ability that God gives them by His Spirit to enjoy whatever stuff they have. Do you like your car? Do you really like your house? I do. I like my house. The reason I can enjoy the things that I have is because God has given me the power to do it. I love my house. But you know what? If it burned down tomorrow, I would go on. I would be sad, there would be work to do, but it is not my life. 
But that doesn't mean I have to hate my house. Because God has given me the power to enjoy all of the things I have. That is the secret to enjoying life and being content. It's not having too much. It's not having too little. It's having whatever you have and being focused upon the Lord. And having Him give you the power to enjoy it. And what happens is, life passes by fast. For He will not much remember the days of His life because God keeps Him occupied with joy in His heart. This is a classic case of a misinterpreted verse in Ecclesiastes. Some people look at this and they go, well, you know, this is really just, oh, miserable. What a downer. I won't even remember the days of my life because God keeps me occupied. Life goes so fast. No. My youngest son, Paul, had a birthday yesterday. Went to a baseball game, watched the kids play baseball, opened some presents, went to Pizza Hut, had friends over, had cake, had balloons. You know what? The day went like that. Because he was having the time of his life. You've had that, haven't you? Wow, where did the day go? Because you are so enjoying what is going on. That's what Solomon's saying here. If you have the proper perspective, life seems like a breeze because it's a ride you can't want to get off of. You just go from point A to point B, focused upon the Lord. And knowing that it just gets better and better and better. And when the ride is off, you don't get off and talk about the ride. You enter glory. And it's better than it was. You see, that's what Solomon's saying. The power the Lord gives you to enjoy life makes life go pleasantly and quickly. It's like every day is a birthday party. Because of God. This is the proper perspective we need to have. We need to be focused upon the Lord with our hearts, not just going through the motions. And if we're focused upon the Lord, then we won't be focused upon what we can get and what we can have. And that's the proper perspective. And that gives us great joy. And that joy bubbles over and others see it. And they say, why in the world are you so content? And the answer is, well, let me tell you about someone. His name is Jesus. Do you want to be there? I do. I want you to. I want you to experience this kind of blessing in your life. A blessing of happiness and meaning and purpose. Not a blessing of a second Cadillac or a third SUV. I want you to be happy and content if God gives you one car or eight cars. That's what I want for you. That's what the scripture wants for you, because that's what God wants for you, to be content in the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have so blessed us to teach us that you do not want part of us. You do not want us to go through the motions, but you want our full heart. We pray, O Lord, this morning that you would help us to dedicate our lives to you, that in all that we have, that we would seek to glorify you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.